All right, go to John. There you have it. Go to John. Uh, we have been in John, John 14. We've been there. We are there. And we will be there for a little while longer. Uh, <clears throat> we have about a year's worth of sermons to cover the book in its entirety. And the first half of the book we've already looked at, it covers the bulk of Jesus's life, of him coming uh, incarnate in the flesh, of him uh, doing life and ministry. And the back half of the book really zooms in and gets the final week and days of Jesus's life. So I think there's an important lesson for us here as John begins to slow it down and pan the camera in that not every single day of your life is equally important. Uh, All the days of your life are important, but not all of them are equally important. You find this even in John, that there is a a distinct set of just a few days that he's going to spend a huge chunk of his book really talking about. There are certain seasons of life. There are certain months maybe or or weeks or even days where you will make decisions, uh, where you will chart a course, where the trajectory of your life will be completely changed because of that day or that moment or that month or that season. So this, this is what's happening here in the life and ministry of Jesus as he approaches his final days. I think it's even uh, why I'm excited about this year's Vision Sunday. Uh, that'll be here in a couple weeks on January 26th. Our normal, just so you know, we'll have two morning services. Those will be pretty normal in that we're going to worship and we're going to open up the Word. We're going to preach. There'll be about 10 or 12 minutes of some vision casting and what I want the entire church body to know. Uh, but then that evening, Sunday night, I don't normally ask for favors, but if I have to ask for a favor every year, it's generally come back on that Sunday night uh, because we'll just talk uh, a lot of what's happening at the church, uh, where we think things are going, and we want you to we want to be on the same page. That'll be fun. We'll have a party. Uh, we'll have popcorn and soda, and we'll just we'll have a ball with that. It'll be a ton of fun on that evening. But I hope that you'll be a part of that because I think that that Sunday and really even through the winter and the and the spring months in Harvest Baptist Church, we're going to look back on and say that this is going to be a season that is very important and very instrumental in in the life of our church over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. So not, not every day is important, but not all of them are equally important. You find this in Jesus's life. And I want to back up just a step. We covered a few of these verses last week, but I want us to get a running start at John 14 and what Jesus tells us in John 14. So look at John 13, verse number 33. Jesus says, little children, or he's talking to his disciples, Yet a little while I am with you, ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. So uh, Jesus' followers have to come to grips with his departure. Jesus has already told a Jewish audience in John 7 and John 8 that he was going to depart, but the tone was entirely different then. In John 7 and 8, he told them, you're not going to follow me, you're going to die in your sins. It was strong language. Here, he's going to follow this up and say, you can follow me. So he's going to tell his disciples, just like I told them, I'm leaving. But he's also going to tell them in a moment that you can follow. So Simon Peter, in verse number 36, says, Lord, whither goest thou? Where are you going, Jesus? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, 
Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? There's a lot of irony there. Jesus is about to lay down his life for Peter's sake, for our sake. And Peter's saying, I'm going to lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus is like, huh? Jesus says unto him, verily, verily, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice or three times. So Jesus says, Peter, not now, but later. I'm leaving and you can't come with me now, but later. Peter says, why not now? I'm all in. I'm, I'm all in. I'll die for you. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're not, Peter. Then right after that, okay, there's a chapter break, but this is the same conversation. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas said to them, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now I want to back up just a step before we jump into John 14 and try to sew together some text we've already looked at. We saw in John 12, and that was just really a few hours before John 14, that Jesus said that his soul was troubled. We saw in John 13 that Jesus had just, right before he said he was going to leave, Jesus had told them that he was troubled in spirit. That Judas left and now he's troubled in spirit. So you find Jesus, troubled heart, troubled spirit, that Jesus is troubled, headed for the agony of the cross, feeling this for certain. And Jesus stops on this night of nights where it would have been appropriate for his disciples to comfort him. And says, let me set aside my own needs. Let me set aside my own emotions. Let me out of a heart of love like I just taught you guys. Let me love you and let me comfort you. How gracious, how kind, how courteous of Jesus to do this for them. Some of you know what it's like to be kind of where the disciples are at in a state of trouble. Some of you know what it's like to have the spiritual gift of anxiety and to be worked up all the time. Some of you know what it's like to have a personality profile of fear. And just, and just to constantly have this turmoil or anguish inside. And what does Jesus do to calm the internal waters of these men? What potion does Jesus offer to help calm them down and to help comfort them? The potion he offers is the promise of heaven and then the path to heaven. That's what he tells them. He says, guys, I have a promise of heaven for you and I have the path to heaven. And I want to cover those two things with you this morning to help uh, a troubled heart or maybe a troubled soul. First, the promise of heaven. Jesus says, look, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Guys, I'm going and where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, what does he mean? What, why is he saying that well, I'm going to prepare a place? Why is it that we would need a place? I would even ask this question, why is it that we are connected to place? Why is place so powerful? If you think about it, Americans spend billions of dollars every year returning to their, their hometown, their place of origin over the holidays. Why is it that when I go home for the holidays, I want to drive past 2446 Bud Road? My parents don't live there anymore, and I don't always drive by it when I go back home, but I want to. Why is it that Part of the curse placed on Adam and Eve was that they would be homeless, that they would be cast out of their place to go find a new place. Why, why was that so painful for them? Why is it that mentally and psychologically 
Very few things are more destructive than being homeless. Than having to live in your car or not even having a car. Having to, having to live somewhere. Why is that so destructive to us? Why is that so painful for us? I watched a documentary a few years back. I, I like sports and I like sports documentary. And ESPN put out a documentary called The House That Ruth Built. It was about the Yankee Stadium that Babe Ruth had played in. It was right at the time where the New York Yankees were building a brand new stadium in the Bronx. And they had this old stadium that they were getting rid of. And it went around and interviewed the, the children and the parents, those that had, had spent generations and years going to Yankee Stadium for the games. And what they found was that those that had attended the games, I mean, year after year after year, and I went with my dad, I went with my grandpa, that they were not excited about a new stadium. They were sad that the old stadium was going away. And although the new stadium was bigger and grander and beautiful and new and had technology and it had all the stuff and the seats were more comfortable or whatever it was, the view was better. Although all that was true, they preferred their old place. Why is it that if I was to shuffle the room around and make you sit in different rows this morning, some of you would be furious because you can't worship from a different row. That's my place. You know what I'm talking about. Why is that? Why, why is place so powerful in us? Why is it that we long for a home? We need a home. We need it. It makes sense to me because we're, we're physical creatures and not just in this life, in the afterlife, that, that we will ha- enjoy resurrected bodies, that that will be physical and tangible. And because we're local, concrete, here physically, we want a place. We want, we want to, to be somewhere. We're, the Bible is, is not at all like, like an Eastern religion. They would present the idea that after you die, you know, you're just this glistening drop going back into the cosmic sea and you just kind of... You link up with the force or the energy and you just kind of exist. It doesn't present that at all. It presents local. It presents personhood. It presents something concrete. And, and as such, we want a place. We long for home. Maybe it's home of yesteryear that we can remember. Maybe it's the home we live in now or maybe the home we want to create one day. But tell me, tell me if this doesn't ring true, that you want a place where you're accepted, where you feel like you belong, where the sights and the sounds and the smells make sense to you. Tell me it's not true that you want a place where the the door is open and and the yellow light is coming out and the fire is on and you walk in and the smell of dinner is in the air and everyone who's in the place, they like that you're there and they greet you and they smile and you sit down in your chair and you just kind of melt away into it. Doesn't that sound great? Don't we want that? Don't we like that? We like home. We like place. That is inside of us. There's tremendous power there. And Jesus says, guys, I'm going to get a place for you. A place where you can belong. A place where you can fit. A place where it will make sense. A place where you will feel at home. And he says, this place is not just a place. This place is the Father's house. This is the Father's house. And he says that there's many mansions there. What does that mean? There's many mansions. I really do not think that Jesus is trying to get at the idea of opulence. I don't think he's trying to say it's gorgeous, although it is gorgeous. I don't think he's trying to say it's grand and it'll blow your mind, although I'm sure it's grand and will blow your mind. I think he's trying to get at the permanency that this, this is not makeshift. This is not just, you know, a tent that we move around everywhere. This is a place where you can dwell, where you can belong, where you can be. 
Many theologians have argued over the years, and I think argued correctly, that deep down inside, we long for place, and the place we long for is, in fact, the Father's house. And the argument goes like this. It says, when you, when you first fall in love, or you first break into your career field, or you first graduate from college, or you, first, you buy that forever home, finally, whatever it is, When you do that, you go on the vacation that you've always dreamed about for 20 years, you and your spouse have been thinking about it. Just as you get to that moment where you're about to buy it, where you're about to leave on the plane, where you're about to enjoy this, you feel as though you're going to get something that that will bring settledness, that will bring peace, that will bring a, a real satisfaction to you. But once you get there and the prize is in your hand, it feels like something... It, 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 you missed it. Somehow you whisked it. It's it just, it, you, you lost it in your, in your grasp. That what you really wanted wasn't completely there. That, there, that there's something missing. And, and we never quite find that true settledness, that true place, that, that true sense of belonging. And many have argued over the years that the reason we don't find this, the reason that the rich and famous who seem to age the least and have the most, yet are the most haunted and need more therapy, and the suicide rates are higher. The reason that is, is because we're, we're reaching for something that never, we're not really ever supposed to find in this life. That that itch that we go to scratch and we think we nailed it, but then it moves just, a, just two inches to the left and then we try to get it again and it just seems like it keeps moving on us. That that actually, even in the best marriages, the best families, the best homes, the best vacations, even in that, there's something that we're looking for that we can't quite find and perhaps it's it's place. Perhaps it's needing that rest. Perhaps it's feeling settled. Perhaps what Jesus is saying is that I have a place for you in the Father's house, and this is the cosmic equivalent of sitting down by the fire in your comfy chair and feeling at home. That I have something for you where you belong. Where you don't be don't be troubled, guys. I want to calm you down. I, I, want, I want to steal you a little bit. I want you to know there's a place that I have for you, and I want you to know that this is the Father's house. One author said it this way. They said, The reason that the best marriages, the best careers, the earthly joys always leave us restless is because our Father may refresh us with some pleasant ends along the way, but He will not let us mistake them for home. So we're supposed to constantly know that that's home, and we long for that. Parks are beautiful. Take a stroll through them. Go ahead. Parks are fantastic. But when you have to live in a park, it's not fantastic. It ruins the park. There's a lot of beauty to this life. Enjoy your career. Enjoy your kids. Enjoy your marriage. And enjoy the, the physical blessings that God gives, gives to you. Enjoy your health. But it's a park. That's not supposed to be home. That's not supposed to give you the true rest that you really want. There's a place in the Father's house. And deep down, I think you know, I'm I'm trying to get at something that kind of you know intuitively that you long for that. You want that. There's something that inside of you knows, yes, uh, yeah, I, I get it. Jesus says, I will place the Father's house. Now, I must say, there, there's a couple problems when you start to talk about the Father's house or heaven, which is what he's talking about. Part of it is that a huge portion of our society doesn't think about heaven or hell. One author said, we've been so concerned with left and right that we've stopped thinking about above and below. 
We don't even think about it anymore. It's just it's way off in the distance, and I'll, maybe I'll think about that at, at some other time. But, but we should. Jesus is calling our attention to this. We should think about this. We should talk about this. I must admit this morning as, as a minister that to talk about heaven and Jesus, the way to get there, is like the easiest sermon ever. This is fantastic. But he calls our attention to this. That you should think about this. You should dwell on this. But even if you think about it, most people in our society have... have really strange ideas about what it will be. The marketing scheme for heaven and hell has been, well, heaven is a cloud and chubby little people with wings that aren't big enough to support them and diapers and harps, you know? And hell is a party. It's Mardi Gras. I'll be there with my friends and just live it up. That's, that's kind of what a lot of people think of as heaven and hell. And, and if, if, I hope you don't think of that that way. I hope you understand what the Bible has to teach us, that heaven is so much more than that and so much grander than that. It's not, it's not you sitting around just strumming a harp for a million years and then you learn the violin. And then a million years later, you know, you'll, you'll pick up the piano or something. That, that's not at all what, what the Bible presents to us about heaven. It presents to us a place, a real place. Not ethereal, float around in the sky. You know, I'll kind of, I'll be Patrick Swayze and ghost and just kind of be there and not be there. Sort of, that's not what it presents. It presents something bodily. For the longest time, I wondered why the Gospels record for us that Jesus, after his resurrection, comes across his disciples, and he's kind of calling them back to action, and they're fishing, and he eats a fish. And for a long time, I thought, like, that's the weirdest thing to record. Like, he ate a fish. Okay, (laughs) thanks. But now I think I understand why, why it teaches us this. He's in his glorified body, eating. Do you know that you will have a glorified body? And guess what? You'll eat. And you'll walk. And you'll, and you'll leap. And you'll dance. And you'll, and you'll run. And you'll have fun. And there will be food and festivity. And there will be, of course, there will be Jesus. I'll get to that in just a moment. But there will be, there will be heaven. There will be culture. There will be things to enjoy. It won't just be I float around in the, in the sky all day long and sing. I can't really sing now, but maybe then I'll be able to sing. It's not, no. There's such concreteness to what the Bible presents as heaven. It's, think of it this way. In this life, there are, there are rivers and mountains and canyons and sunsets and beauties and immensities that we marvel at that cause us to step back in awe and in wonder. If God has given that to his enemies, what do you think heaven's going to be like? What do you think he has for his kids what do you think he has for, for his friends in heaven? I can't say all of it, but I can tell you it will, it will dazzle you. I don't know if this is the case or not. I honestly don't. So I'll, I'll clarify this first. But I, know, I do know this. In this life, if you have five senses, you were born with all five senses, they work fine. And you try to explain to someone else who was born with just four what the fifth one's like. Let's say someone was born blind. And you try to explain to them what seeing a sunset is like. Good luck. It is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to to fully describe what this sense is that you have that they do not have. I don't know if we'll have 10 senses in heaven. I don't know if we'll have 100. I don't know if we'll have 1,000. Maybe we'll still just have five. I'm not sure, but I am sure that there are things that are going to make our mind explode. Things that we couldn't even really comprehend now if we wanted to, to even try to get it that are there, that is, that's the Father's house. 
And Jesus says, guys, I want you to know I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you in this place and not just any place. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to the Father's house. But then he says very plainly and very clearly that he is going to be there. It's not just that there's a place, but guys, you need this because I'm going to be there. Now, I struggle to communicate the language the Bible has for what it will be like to be in heaven with Jesus and see him there. The Bible talks about it, but the language is so strong, it's as if it can't even communicate to you in words what this is like. You'd find, for example, in John 17, we'll look at this in a few weeks, uh, but John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays to the Father, he says, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. That sounds a lot like John 14. Father, I'm going to be there. I want them to be there with me. We're going to be together. You'll be where I am, right? Then he says this, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now you tell me, it's going to be a tough question. It's not a trick question, but it'll be a tough one. Jesus is there with his disciples in the flesh. Are they beholding the glory of the Father as Jesus is there with them? I knew you wouldn't answer me. Yes, they are. John's already told us that this is the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. They're beholding glory when they see Jesus in the flesh. But Jesus goes to, to tell them, when you see me there, when you are with me there, you're going to see a whole different version of glory. You're going to see a whole different level of glory. You're going to see the love from the foundation of the world interchange between the Father and the Son. You're going to see uh, what some have called the forge of glory, where glory really comes from, ground zero of glory. Like you're going to be there and behold it. John would later write in 1 John in his epistle about this, that we are there and we behold Jesus when we see his glory. And John says in 1 John 3 verses 2 and 3, he says that when that happens, like Moses went up the mountain and he got a little glimpse of the glory of God and it radiated him and it changed him. When we see Jesus in his glory in heaven, it will change us. It will transform us. It will do something in us and to us that is tough to even describe. And John goes on to say in the next verse that just thinking about that and the hope of that now, not even doing it then, but the hope of that now will transform your heart and change you now. That it's so powerful. The experience of being with Jesus in heaven is so powerful that just the thought of it and the hope of it now will change you. This, the, the Bible has such strong language for what this will be like that I can't even begin to really imagine how grand this will be. And Jesus says, I have a place, I have the Father's house, and you're going to be with me. This is why the first, second, and third centuries were turned upside down by the followers of Jesus. Those that came from a, a, a Roman background had learned to deal with death with stoicism. Stiff upper lip, tough it out, it'll be fine, don't quiver. And then they came across these Christians who they started to kill. They started to feed to wild animals. They started to, to hook up to animals and pull them till they burst at the seams. They started to, to, to burn them at the stake. And these Christians went to their deaths with joy with a smile that they were counted worthy to suffer for the Lamb. And, and they looked at these people and said, what is going on? We've never seen nothing like this. 
How is it that these Christians did this? How is it that we should do this? It's this. It's this comfort. It's this hope. That there is a heaven. That's where the Father is. This is the Father's house. And I'm going to be with Jesus. So the world can be on top of me if it wants to, but I'm on top of the world. It doesn't matter. This, this is something that is so unbelievably practical. I put, I think, five or six different verses in your outline. I'm not going to read through them with you today. But the New Testament is peppered with terminology and, and verses that help us to see that we should live from this paradigm. That this, if you're thinking, Pastor, how practical is this? Okay, great. I'll, I don't know. I'll pull this back up. I'll look at the live stream like when I'm on my deathbed and I'll remember this and it'll be practical then. But tomorrow, I've got to go to work, man. I mean, like, my kids are going to be screaming at me. I got, I got things to do. I mean, how, how practical is this? You're missing it. To live from this, to have this grip you is something that should happen. That, there, that there's a promise, a place I have in the Father's house. If you don't understand this, then, then you're, you're going to miss the whole, the whole big picture. Okay, here's, I don't have time for the implications. I'll just give you one. When you understand this, you get eternity and you get, you know what lasts? The kingdom of God and people. That's it. The kingdom of God and the rewards that I get for serving Jesus are going to last. And people are going to have personhood forever. No matter where they spend eternity, people have personhood forever. They continue on. The kingdom of God is going to last and people are going to last. That will help you tomorrow. That will help you next week. That will help you plan 2020 and plan the next decade and, spend, and plan what you do with your finances and what you do with your time. And if you get, get in a group or not, or if you serve or not, that will help you to understand what Jesus is talking about, the comfort and the potion that he's offering to his men. Guys, there's a place. You, you want a place. You long for a place. It's home. It's the Father's house. I'm going to be there. But then he goes on to say, okay, this isn't just a place where I'm going to tell you, here's the way. Here's, here's, here's a promise of heaven, yeah, but here's the path to heaven. And this is what he says in John 14. Whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And I find this so intriguing. Thomas says, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? So Jesus says, guys, you know where I'm going, you know how to get there. Thomas is like, no, we don't. Which is so opposite of like, Jesus and his apple dumpling gang, like his whole ministry. Jesus is pretty much telling them all the time, you think you know, but you really don't, guys. And here's the opposite. He's like, you think you don't know, but you know. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't. What, what are you talking about? We know. He says, well, verse 6, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. What he's saying is, Thomas, you know me. And because you know me, you know the way. Thomas, because you know me, you already got to figure it out. And I know that you aren't necessarily connecting these dots yet, Thomas, but you've already found the way. And Jesus says very plainly, if you want a path to heaven, you want to know how to get there, here's what he says, it's me. It's me. All through his ministry, Jesus says, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. He says, I, I am uh, the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the resurrection. I am the life. He says these things. I am the bread of life. Why, why would he make these claims? All the other prophets, all the other religion starters, all, all the other sages said basically, look, I found a way. I found a truth. You want to know the way? Here's the way. Go do this. Here's, here's the eightfold path to enlightenment. Here's, here's the code you have to keep. Here's, here's the standards to live by. Here's the truth that I found. I had a vision from God and he gave it to me. Jesus doesn't talk like that at all. It's not I found it. I'll tell you the way. I'll tell you. No, no, no. I am it. I'm the way. I didn't find the truth. I am the truth. 
I didn't find life to just give you life that, you know, I found over here in a, in a magic treasure chest, and here you go, fountain of life. I'll give you a cup to drink from. No, I am the life. Life generates from me. I'm the source of all life. Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now listen, if you think there's a different way to get to the Father's house, you'd be wrong. And I think that this ties in with Peter's hubris. Chapter 13 ended with Peter saying, Lord, I'll go with you. I'll die for you. I'm going to get there. I'm going to tag along with you, Jesus. I'll be with you because of what I'll do. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't know a thing. You're going to fall flat on your face, bro. Before morning, three times you're going to deny me. What do you know? But then he turns around and tells Peter, but you're going to be with me. How's that? You just said he was going to deny you. You said he was going to say no. You said he was going to walk away. It's not about Peter. It's not about what Peter does or doesn't do. It's not about if Peter denies him three times, four times, five times, no times. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. And the whole text is trying to get you to see that this is not about you. And don't make the grave and classic mistake of thinking, you know what? Yes, I want to go to heaven. Sounds wonderful. Place, home, Father, Jesus. Fantastic. I consider myself a follower of Jesus. So I'll get there. I'll work myself there. I'll do good enough. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I think my good will weigh my bad. I think yeah, if he has to let somebody in, probably me. I mean, I'm better than most people. I'm a pretty good guy. I, I do enough. You know, I try to take care of my kids. I'm not that bad of a person. Nonsense. Nonsense. It is not at all about you. Peter can deny him all he wants. But Jesus says, look, you're going to understand and you're going to know me and that's going to get you there. It's not about you. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'll say this. It's, it's in spite of you. It's, it's not just, oh, you know what? You don't do enough good. No, it's, it's you do so much wrong. It's in spite of you. It's grace. This is Jesus offering the way to heaven through himself and through himself only. Jesus does not say, and I'm sure that you know this, but just, just to be sure, he does not say that he's a way. He says he's the way. He presents it as though you need someone to unlock heaven's door from the inside and he'll be in and you're not going to be in. And the only way you're getting in is if he lets you in. He has to unlock it for you. He's the way. He, he tells us very, very plainly, I'm it. I love what Thomas Akempa said like forever ago. He said, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. It's only through Jesus. The followers of Jesus would echo this and would tell us this time and time again that there's, there's not salvation in any other. There's only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's extreme exclusivity here. It goes entirely against the cultural myth that, you know what, all roads you know, lead to the same place and all paths go to the same destination and we're all going up the same mountain. That, just to be clear, that doesn't even make sense in, in like real time. If your 16-year-old gets their license and they say, I want to go to grandma's house, but how do I get there? And you say, oh, pick a path. It'll get you there. They all go to the same place. They all lead to grandma's house. That's stupid. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in eternity either that everywhere is going to get to the same destination no matter what the path is. No. Jesus says very plainly, I'm the way. That's it. There's, there's no other option here. You say, man, that offends me. That, that's how dare he. That's what he says. I'll really bottom shelf it for you, okay? What Jesus says is if you don't choose me and you choose Islam 
or Hinduism or atheism or agnosticism or whatever ism you want to pick. You will not be in the Father's house. You will not go to heaven. You will go to hell. That's the bottom line. That's what he says. He said there should be more options than that. Okay, you tell me. I'll illustrate it and I'll be done. Let's suppose that you were introduced to smoking as a four-year-old. And you've been smoking since you were four. Pack a day. Okay? Hopefully that's not the case. But, you know, just in case. As a matter of fact, you're up to like 18 packs a day now. Okay? You smoke like a chimney. And you get lung cancer. And it's, it's I mean, it's not just starting. I mean, it's bad. It's like stage four. And you go to the doctor. Say, Doc, I know I shouldn't have. I mean, I knew the warnings, but hey, here's where we're at. What can you do for me? And the doc says, you know what? You're in luck. I have a brand new, like, medicine of this thing will work wonders. What do you mean work wonders? Like, what's my chances? Oh, 100%. Cures lung cancer up instantaneously every time. It's amazing. How long? Is there a waiting list? Like, what? No, I got it on the back shelf. It's sitting there. I'll give it to you. All right. What's the hook? Okay, left arm, right arm, which one? I mean, how much is this going to cost me, guy? Nothing. Benefactor has made this available for free. I won't even make you pay your deductible today. I mean, you can just, no copay, no nothing. You can just get right out of here. It's, it's, it's free. Stop. I did this to myself, but there's a cure. It's free. It's available immediately. I don't have to do anything. You just give it to me. Yeah. What are the options I got? You tell me. You're going to ask the doctor, uh, give, me, give, me, give, me, uh, give me a second, third doctor. Give me plan B. How, what about chemo? We do that? You mean mad at him because he didn't give you another way? Absolutely not. He's, he's offering you exactly what you need for nothing to completely take care of you. The last thing you would do is to be upset because he's so exclusive and you're only going to give me that medicine. You're not going to give me other options here. The other option is death. That's it. You would be thrilled out of your mind. When Jesus tells us that you have a condition that you have brought upon yourself by your own sin and it is terminal and you will die in your sin and you cannot fix yourself, but I have procured the way, I have a solution, I will, I will forgive you, clean you, give you heaven, do it all for free, it works every time, it's available immediately and it's here for you right now and you respond with, well, that's the only option, that's nonsense. He tells you on the way. That's it. Take it or leave it. Me. Now here's where we're at. Most of you I know in this room would say, you know what, Pastor? I've, I've already come to terms with this. And this morning, I'm just rejoicing in heaven. And I'm just rejoicing that I will be there and I will be with Jesus. And there have been some reminders. Okay, great. You need to live from that paradigm. You need to take that with you. You need to dwell on this. It's powerful stuff. It'll comfort you and it'll help you. But perhaps you're here and you would say, Pastor... I do not know if I would go to heaven. I do not know that I feel comforted by the thought of heaven and hell because I just, I am not sure. If you had, if, if you had to tell me that today I had to have no fear of dying tomorrow, pastor, I'm not there. Friend, I want to tell you, you can't be. Jesus is offering his disciples gold Friends, I want you to know 
You don't have to be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And let me tell you, it's the Father's house. There's many mansions there. It's permanent. You don't have to worry about it. It's not going to be ripped out from underneath of you. And I'm the way. You can come. You can be with me if you'll choose me. If you have never chosen him, I'll put it this way. If you would say, I don't know what would happen if I faced eternity. I don't know if I would go to heaven, pastor. You don't have to live in doubt. You can know. Not because I said so. Jesus said so. You can know that you're going to heaven if you'll put your faith and your trust in him. And this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to do that.